today's episode is sponsored by Indigo Junction. Inspire your creative spirit with Indigo Junction books and patterns. Visit the IJ blog to learn more about fabrics and techniques, as well as giveaways and events. Join the Indigo Junction Facebook sewing pattern group and receive the everyday dress pattern. Use coupon code WSN25 for 25% off your entire order. Thank you so much, Indigo Junction. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 123 of the While She Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about textile design with my guest, Jen Hewitt. Jen Hewitt is a printmaker, surface designer, textile artist, and teacher. A lifelong Californian, Jen combines her love of loud prints and saturated colors with the textures and light of the California landscapes to create highly tactile, visually layered printed textiles. Jen's first book, Print, Pattern, Sew, Block Printing Basics and Simple Sewing Projects for an Inspired Wardrobe, was published by Roost Books in May of 2018. And her first line of commercial fabrics will be available with cotton and steel in August of 2018. Jen and her dog Gus live in San Francisco, two blocks from Golden Gate Park and three miles from the Pacific Ocean. Jen does live in the Bay Area, but she's actually on a book tour right now. And she is here in the Boston area doing a few events, including one coming up tonight at my favorite local shop, Gather Here. And today she's visiting me here at my house where I record the podcast, which is such a treat. So I will be honest and say this is the first time I've had a podcast guest come to my home to record. So Jen, thank you so much for coming to visit me. Thanks for having me, Abby. So you were just at Squam over the weekend, and I wondered if you could start by just telling us a few words about what Squam is and how it was. Squam was fantastic. Um, It is an art camp for adults, and you get two days of lessons um, from different artists or crafters based in the U.S., and some actually came in from France and Australia. And when you're not in class, you hang out by the lake. Wow. Pretty fantastic. Yeah. So you were teaching. I was teaching uh, Thursday and Friday and I had Saturday off. Okay, great. I haven't been, but it looks like an amazing experience. You stay in a cabin and Mm -hmm. kind of meditate and chill out and have time to make things and reconnect with nature. and Exactly. Yeah. And some people have been going since its inception. So they have Squam friends that they only see at Squam and it's a time for them to reconnect and hang out. Wow, yeah. that sounds great. Well, that sounds sounds like it was a, a good weekend and good part of your book tour, kind of a maybe a little more relaxing stop on the tour. It's a trek to get out there, I won't lie. Okay. Um, especially when you're teaching and I had to ship a lot of stuff. It's one thing when you're teaching knitting and all your students bring their supplies with them. I had to ship five boxes of block printing supplies to Squam and still pick up stuff on the way. So once I got there, I was completely relaxed, but the lead up to it was a bit stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Lots of planning. <laughs> Logistics. Lots of planning. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so you've said that you think that um, part of what being an artist is, is 
consciously creating your life instead of just sort of blindly following a path. And I, I really love that idea of sort of consciously choosing what your life is going to be as part of being an artist. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that idea of shaping your life as an artistic act. I think I'm giving myself way more credit than I should in terms of I'm I'm a planner, but I'm also not super rigid about my plans. And I think what I tend to do is plan the big picture and let the pieces fall as they might. So a few years ago, I left my last full-time job, which I absolutely hated, um, to start consulting, knowing that I wanted to be a full-time artist, but I couldn't afford to. Um, And so I had in my mind that I would do it for about 10 years. And by the time I was 45, I would quit consulting and would finally be able to be a full-time working artist. Um, Things worked out a little bit better. So I quit, I think when I was 42, I'm 43 now, but there wasn't a real step-by-step. This is where I need to be each year. It was more like, this is probably a California woo-woo thing, but it was an intention that this is where I want to be. These are the things I think I need to do. Um, These are the goals I have, but I don't know how and when and where and why. I just need to get through them. Okay. So, but once I knew I wanted to be a working artist, all the decisions I made around my life had to do with that. So um, I consulted, I cut down my expenses. um, I made it a priority. So, you know, there were just certain trips I wouldn't go on and certain things I wouldn't do because it would somehow distract me from my goal of being an artist. But also what it meant was I started to make, really consciously make friends who were also artists and doing the kinds of work I was doing or wanted to do. So my life became kind of all encompassed by by being an artist. And did it also mean making work or making art-related products that you knew would be able to generate income? Because there's one it's one thing to be an artist and to, for example, spend a year making an art piece that may or may not ever sell, or to be an artist that has sort of a diverse set of income streams that come in through teaching, through a set of products, through licensing, through a whole bunch of different things that make it so that you know that you can generate income throughout the year in a sort of somewhat steady way. Um, So, you know, sometimes uh, being an artist can mean a lot of different things and being able to do it full time realistically means that you have to diversify that way. In some ways, I was lucky because I consulted. And so because I was consulting and I could work 20 hours a week for different clients, I relied on that for my income. And we should say that this is um, human resources right. consulting. So it's something completely outside of art. Exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly what I needed. I needed something that used a different part of my brain that I could just shut off and leave at home for the most part at night. At, sometimes I would have to take a phone call at night because I had to get into the office the next morning to fire someone. Um, but for the most part, once I was done, I was done mm-hmm. during the day. Um, so that was really my day job. And that allowed me to both do the work I really wanted to do and not have to worry about trends, um, as well as also have the the funds, the capital to do, to fund some of the larger projects, like having an online class that I knew would generate revenue, but needed a bit of money up front for hosting and for video shoots and for editing. So the consulting really funded that for the first five years. 
Okay. And I, I knew that going into it. So I was able to do personal projects, um, one of which turned into a book, um, the other of which turned into a class, but I was able to do those projects just for the heck of doing them and not have to worry about the money either to fund the projects or also to, um, you know, I, I didn't have to worry about making income from those projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and so, all right, let's go back a little bit and talk about sort of your upbringing and how you got to where you are now. Um, so where did you grow up? Did you grow up in California? I did. I grew up in Los Angeles, Okay. Um, actually in the city of Los Angeles, just a little bit west of downtown. Okay. And I grew up in a little neighborhood that was, so my, my dad is African-American. My mom is Filipina and immigrated here in the early seventies. Um, met my dad pretty quickly after that they worked together, but I grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly kind of uh, professional African-Americans, so professional upper middle class, um, as well as interracial couples. So I grew up in a neighborhood where everybody kind of looked like us. Okay. And then I went to a school where nobody looked like me. You went to Catholic school. I went to Catholic school for 12 years. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you were the minority. Everybody was white in Catholic school. Almost everybody was, uh, well, it was starting to diversify at that point. Okay. But there are, outside of the South, really, there aren't a lot of black Catholics. So uh-huh. um, South and parts of the Midwest and Northeast. But definitely in California, it's not a thing. And so okay. my brother and I made up 50% of the African-American <laughs> population. <laughs> um, but there were Kids, there were kids, Latino and mostly Filipino kids as well. But the school had only been diversifying in probably the last five to 10 years before I showed up. And there were a lot of really old, old school nuns who had never had to teach a child of color. Wow. And would say incredibly offensive things oh my goodness. to us. It was kind of mind boggling. Wow. Um, and that school has changed a lot just because that part of L.A. has really changed, too. Um, so it's. It's, it's kind of a pleasure to see a lot of the kids I went to school with send their kids there and to see how different the school is now okay. and how open-minded and interesting it is. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. But, but it was at the time you were there, it was not so much. Not so much. And um, it was very much based on, uh, focused on the basics. So reading, writing, and arithmetic, a lot of reading and a lot of writing but there wasn't really anything creative involved. Um, And so my parents still tell the story about how I got a D in art in seventh grade. And that was because I just didn't follow the rules. Mm -hmm. So like everybody was supposed to draw the same thing Mm -hmm. or with the same colors or the same materials or whatever. And you decided to go your own way. And that was not, therefore not okay. Not okay. Right. Right. (laughs) By any means. Uh Um, And so I was a really good student once I got into high school. I was an exceptional student and my parents had, my dad managed factories. My mom worked at a hospital. Like we were kind of upper working class, kind of. Mm-hmm. You know. um, and so my parents were paying all this money for me to go to private schools. And their belief was, well, this is an investment. You're not going to be an artist. You're not going to go to art school, especially since you got a D in art. Right. You know, <laughs> six years ago, we're not, we're not funding art school. Um, and I was really lucky that I got a scholarship to go to Berkeley and so I didn't apply to any art schools. Yeah. Well, my parents were absolutely, there's no way you're going to art school. Right. right. You need to, because you need to get an education. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was 
flat out stated, like, right. <laughs> you are to get an education, therefore you are not going to art school. Right. Yes, that was not an option. Not an yes. option. And I think, to be honest, I don't think I was ready for art school at that age. I think I was really insecure and awkward and shy, and I don't think I could have created work and defended it. I mm-hmm. couldn't have dealt with criticism. Um, but by the time I finished college, I went to work for an educational nonprofit, and then I worked um, at a private school doing admissions. And I realized that was not the track I wanted to be on. I didn't want to be in education for the rest of my life, although I'm thankful I was there because I ended up doing so much of my work is teaching and explaining. Um, And I decided I wanted to start my own business. I wanted to do something really creative. I thought about graphic design. I was terrified of working with clients and had this brilliant idea of starting a stationary business. And this would have been 2000 and all my friends were going to work for startups. This was the first wave, what we called the dot-com boom back in the day. And they were taking all these really cool tech jobs. And I was like, I'm going to start a stationary business. So you must have had known that you were artistic, mm-hmm. despite the, the bad grade in art. I mean, you must have been drawing. If you were going to be the designer for the stationary business or thought about being a graphic designer, you must have also been drawing yourself and known that you had some drawing skills. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And design skills. In fact, I was working for these nonprofit organizations that had no money for design. And so I would always take it on. You'd be like, I'll do the pamphlet. I'll do, I'll yeah. do the whatever. Yeah. And the, some of that work was really bad, but it was better than nothing. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And I'm sure they were grateful to have somebody who wanted to do it. Yeah. Right. right. So, okay. All right. So you thought you would do the stationary business and the stationary business was this, I mean, it's interesting, like. From the outside, so this is like 2000 to 2004, Mm -hmm. and from the outside, it really appears to be a success. Like, I think a lot of people would look at it and say, wow, it was a success. You had product in anthropology and paper source in Neiman Marcus, and, you know, like you were doing trade shows. I mean, it was, wow, amazing. But you've said pretty openly that you were in debt, that it wasn't, I mean, for you financially, it was you know, not necessarily a success. You felt like you needed in the end to sell the business and get out. And, you know, you had made some mistakes. So I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about what you felt like went wrong there or what some of those sort of mistakes were in that first entrepreneurial venture. I think the number one thing was that I was 26 and I'd had no business experience prior to that. Um, And so I just made a lot of really bad mistakes. Like I over... I over-ordered inventory up front, so I had way more than I needed, and certain items just didn't sell, and I invested a lot of cash, like all of my cash, up front into that. And so I was relying on operating cash to get me through um, to order new inventory, and there was an expectation that I had to do a new collection every six months at least, but preferably I would have three or four collections a year, so two big ones, two small ones. And printing wasn't super expensive, um, but it was expensive enough that I just couldn't keep up with it. So I was taking on a lot of debt in order to fund the printing and fund the business. After a certain point, I got the kinds of accounts I wanted to have, but at the same time, I also had all this debt. And so the pressure of having a lot of debt, as well as the pressure of filling these huge orders, caused me to have a pretty huge series of panic attacks. And I realized that the first way for me to make those stop would be actually to let go of the thing that was causing all the panic, which was the business and the debt related to it. Um, So I was lucky in that there was another company that had been a customer that wanted to take over 
the the name as well as the images and run with the business. And she probably kept that going for about a year, but she paid me out. So she paid me licensing fees for all the artwork she used. Um, and then I went and got a regular full-time job again. And it was actually a job I really liked. I was doing, at the time, marketing and operations for an online learning company. And then that shifted to HR and operations. So I know that you've also said, and I appreciate how open you've been in some of your past interviews because it made this um, research for this uh, <laughs> podcast much easier for me. But um, you've also said that you're a recovering perfectionist and that you know you have had some anxiety, which you just mentioned in, in your past and um, around perfectionism and, um, and have actually sought out therapy around mm-hmm. sort of um, trying to overcome those feelings of perfectionism. And um, I love that you, you had a therapist in the past who said, why don't you go out and on purpose make a mistake and then see what happens. And then you did that and nothing really bad happened and it was okay. And life went on and, and it was okay. But I imagine in that instance, well, you know, at age 26, over investing in inventory, having this debt and basically having this business sort of almost feel like a failure in some way, even though it was also a success in other ways. Um, I mean, that for a person who is a perfectionist could really be a blow. And I wondered how you felt about, I mean, you did find a buyer and were able to get out gracefully, but was that difficult to recover from or um, emotionally? Did you sort of feel like, I can't be an entrepreneur. I tried and it didn't, you know, some people would be like, I tried that and it didn't work and I can't do this anymore. You know what I mean? I was relieved, to be honest. Um, My friends were the ones that had a harder time of it because for them, this was my identity. For me, it was, yeah, this didn't work out. Um, and it's devastating that it didn't work out. But I am young enough that I can go on to something else. And I think I think that was the right attitude to have. Um, I did go on to something else. And that's where I had enough of a, an anxiety attack that I did get therapy. So when I went to the next work, my regular full-time job, the nice thing, too, was that I had insurance. So I could actually afford therapy at that point. Um But what I told myself and I told my parents when I told them I was shutting down the business was I am in debt for this as much as some people are in debt for one year of private school. And so it was an education. It was cheaper than an MBA. And I learned so much. Um, I don't I regret some of the decisions I made, but I don't regret starting that business or closing it, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's so much resiliency in being able to keep to continue to go and also to continue to be an entrepreneur. I mean, you're an artist now, but you're also an entrepreneur. You have a business again. Um, You are working for yourself again. Um, You know, so, I mean, it's a different kind of business, really. Mm -hmm. But, but, um, you know, there are people who would say, like, that's it. Like, I I need to go work for someone else, you know. But you're back at it, you know. Back at it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm lucky, too, that Actually, there was an interim job that I had taken that was horrible. I always forget about that, and I quit that (laughs) to go work for this other company. I'm lucky that that company and that job that I had for four years, I loved. Um, Because I think it would have been hard, and I learned so much, but it would have been hard to go from working for myself to spending four years working in a really lousy environment doing a job that I absolutely hated. Mm -hmm, Because that would have really felt like, oh, I had to return to the grind or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you did find a a positive home afterwards to recover. And yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I worked with a lot of really smart, interesting people who um, were all, we were all around the same age and they were 
confident and would make mistakes and would pick themselves back up. And I was like, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. I've never done that. Of course, I had kind of done it on a really large scale where I had this business that failed and I picked myself up and started something new. But Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, it was all those little mistakes that I could never really recover from. And so I think that's part of why the original business had failed too. I'd make a mistake and I wouldn't know how to recover from it. So I would just bury it and I would just keep making the same mistake over and over again um, and not learn anything from it. And by the time I had gotten to the full-time job and where I had a bit of a meltdown and didn't know how to deal with recovering from mistakes. That's when I got the therapist, Bethany, Dr. Bethany, who told me, okay, just consciously make a mistake. And really what happens? Think about it. And nothing happened. Absolutely Mm -hmm. nothing. And I had a friend who would tell me, did anyone die when I would say, oh, I made this horrible mistake at work and now I'm worried they're going to hate me and I'm not going to say anything about it. Did anyone die? No. Then talk to your manager. Right. He'll get it. Right. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and he was like, okay. Yeah. No, thanks. All right. We're human. It's yeah. okay. <laughs> Why are you making this into a big deal? Yeah. It's interesting. I'm not a perfectionist. Um, and so I don't, I don't worry so much about that, but, mm-hmm. um, but I have, um, yeah, I, I definitely hear a lot from people who are, and, um, and I can see how it's, it's very stressful. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Indigo Junction, and Indigo Junction's founder, Amy Barrickman. Hi, Abby. It's Amy from Indigo Junction. I know you've got some really neat content on your blog right now. We are adding weekly posts. For instance, we have a really nice post that describes techniques for sewing with rayon related to some of our garment patterns. We feature Kate Spain's Rayon from Moda. We also have some posts on Fabriflare, which is our dimensional paper piecing line, showing different fabrics and different techniques for beading and embroidery accents. Okay, great. Neat. And do you want to tell us a little bit about some neat things that are going to be coming up for Indigo Junction? We're working on a post on sewing fashion with gingham and it's going to feature some some unique accents that can be created with just different layouts so that's going to be a lot of fun and we also have you know we're always working on our youtube series and adding the vintage made modern videos as well as pattern reviews we have book reviews including the land that i love that book we've done a video explaining how you can personalize an embroidery with your favorite landmarks and towns so there's really a lot of variety that we have on the blog for anyone who loves creating with needle and thread in our facebook group there is an exclusive pattern for that group and it's called the everyday dress and we have a post that explains that pattern and shows you several different fabric combinations and several different stylings. You can make it a shirt, a dress, a tunic. Awesome. So um, where can people go to check out the Indigo Junction blog and see all this cool stuff? Head over to indigojunction.com. And on the blog, we actually have a place that you can sign up for a newsletter and to receive those blog posts in your inbox if, if you're interested. Okay, great. And I hear you have a coupon code just for Walshy Naps listeners. The code is WSN25, and that'll get you 25% off your next order at indigojunction.com. Thank you so much, Indigo Junction. And now back to my conversation with Jen. 
So you took a screen printing class um, kind of on a whim in 2007. And I wondered what the initial appeal for you was of making prints. Um, something about it seemingly caught your imagination. Well, I needed a creative outlet because I was working this corporate job and everybody I was working with was a designer and I was the operations person. So I took that class on a whim, but also kind of in the back of my mind was I can actually control both the design and the production of this. So if I get good at it, then I could have another greeting card company. I could do all these different things and do them on a much smaller scale because I'm printing everything myself. Um, I just didn't realize I would take to it quite as quickly and as well as I did. I was completely hooked after that first first class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, as someone who has done operations in almost all her jobs, there's something very pleasing and operational about printmaking. So it's all about setting everything up correctly. And there are so many steps that turn most people away. Um, but by the end, you know, you've got everything set up exactly the way you need it to be set up. And then you print and it's, it's the loveliest feeling. I don't hmm. know. I imagine that people who plan events probably feel the same way where it's a lot of work to plan an event. But okay. once the event runs smoothly, right. You just feel like it's a job well done. Right. Okay. So it scratches a certain kind of planning mm -hmm. itch. Yes. Or something like that. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's that's such an interesting thing to think through, like the kind of art making and kind of organization or something like that, that, <laughs> that are where our brains are wired for. So, and it's, it's also interesting to think about all the different things you've been able to do with it. So you took this class, you were introduced to this particular type of art making, which you really liked and enjoyed. And then it's gone down all of these paths all of these various yeah. things that it's led to. So um, in 2012, for example, one of the paths that it led to, there was this Kickstarter campaign. Um, oh my God, that's <laughs> so, right. Uh, so you successfully uh, raised a whole bunch of money to have a line of bags manufactured. Um, but you're not manufacturing bags now. So I'm interested to hear sort of what the idea was and then what happened with that idea. I had wanted to start manufacturing again locally um, and sell a product. I was, I just, I love product. I also didn't have the money to fund this project really on my own. Probably, I maybe would have, um, but I wanted to have an audience built in up front. So I funded it. I printed the fabric. I worked with this local sewer. I worked with um, a leather worker who attached the straps. And he screwed up and all the straps started falling off the bags the minute people received them. Oh my God. And it was, so this was actually where all the therapy came in handy <laughs> because I got that first call and then an email. How people. many bags were there with the, with the defective? 80. Okay. Okay. I mean enough. Yeah. And so I had to email everybody and just say this, I apologize. I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to work with a leather worker. It was like crisis management for bags. Um, I'm going to work with him. I'll get back to you and let you know what we're going to do. And it turned out that the leather worker had taken a shortcut. Mm -hmm. And he didn't realize the impact it would have. And he redid every single bag. Mm -hmm. I had to pay postage to get bags back from people and mm -hmm. then to ship them out. But 
it made me really happy that I was doing this through Kickstarter because Kickstarter people, they really just want to fund your project. Mm-hmm. They might want the item as well, but they want to fund the project. And they know going into it that this is a prototype and there will be kinks to work out. Right. So people were incredibly supportive, um, especially because I think I was upfront with them about what had happened mm-hmm. and that I was going to fix it. And this was where all that therapy came in handy, where you acknowledge the problem, you figure out a way through it, and then you you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I, I did. And it made me realize, too, that managing manufacturing and also distribution and shipping and all of that stuff was something that I hated about my greeting card company, and it wasn't something that I wanted to do again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was perfectly happy to do it then. Right. And that if I was going to do sell product, I needed to control, I, I needed to be the producer. Uh-huh. And not have this sort of outsourced manufacturing right. created by these other people. Yeah. Which, for other folks, I think that that would be what they wanted to do. Yeah. And that's totally fine. It was just really knowing what I wanted to do and sticking to it, which may have meant that I had to work my consulting job a couple more years um, because I wasn't right. blown product through. But at the same time, I wasn't doing work that I didn't want to do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was consulting and I didn't really want to do that, but I wasn't making work that I didn't want to make. Right. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the thing about this is that there's so many different avenues that you can pursue. Like, um, I just reminded me that I spent a little while doing craft fairs, for example. I don't know if you've done craft fairs. I've done craft fairs. (laughs) Um, And you'll notice that I don't do craft fairs now, and I haven't done them for years. And it was a similar experience. I was like, I don't do craft fairs anymore because I can't do this. I can't stand doing this. There's so many things about this that I can't stand doing, and I will never do them again. I mean, never say never, but I don't I don't stand behind a table and have people pick things up. This is not what I do. (laughs) So, well, and I had years when I would do craft fairs where I would barely break even Mm -hmm. and I would have, I would put it online and it would sell just fine, but going out to craft fairs and smiling and I think I'm a fairly, I'm an introvert, but put me in a social, social situation. I'm fine. But at the end of two days, my face would hurt from smiling so much and I would be exhausted and I'd want to crawl into a hole and I maybe would have made $400. And it just wasn't worth it to me. Mm -hmm. So I decided to stop mostly doing those. There is one craft fair I'll do, um, but I don't have product anymore. So there's really no reason for me to go. Right, exactly. So, I mean, I think it's worthwhile to try a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. I mean, the bag Kickstarter was an example of trying that. I mean, having a product manufactured is a route many people take. Um, And it's if you think that that might be something you would want to do, it's worth trying. But at the same time, it's also worth listening to yourself and saying, okay, I don't like the way this feels. And so you don't have to do it Mm -hmm. if that's not what you enjoy. So, um, okay. So you've also done some really interesting, and we did um, reference this earlier, some really interesting um, projects. So sort of monthly projects or weekly projects. And really, they've just been for yourself, for to pursue your own interests, your own creativity, mostly while you were working uh, another job just to keep you um, 
motivated, accountable, creative, um, and not necessarily for some sort of end goal necessarily beyond that. Um, but anyway, I want to talk about those projects and what they've led to um, personally and also maybe professionally. So um, the first one, I think this was the first one, you can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, was 52 weeks of printmaking. That's Is that correct. the first one? Okay, so explain a little bit about that project, sort of how you came up with it, um, what you felt like, you know, was the benefit of doing a project um, and, and how you structured it. Was it mostly um, on Instagram or on your blog or, or sort of how you help, helped uh, keep yourself accountable and, and kind of what it led to. I forgot about my blog. I used to blog all the time. <laughs> yes, you do have a blog. I yep. do have a blog. I think I last updated it three months ago. <laughs> um, yes, so 52 weeks of printmaking. What I'd really wanted to do, I was calling myself a printmaker, but I really had only screen printed up to that point. I'd done some block printing, a little bit of etching, but I really wanted to delve into printmaking and explore a whole bunch of different print media. Um, and so I decided that for the entire year, every week, I would just do a new print and it could be screen printed, it could be block printed or surface um, resist, sorry, surface design. It could be a whole bunch of different things, etching, intaglio printing, lithography. Um, but because I was working, I think I, that was the year I was helping start up a company and hired this company's, all of its original employees, I was just slammed. And so I waited until the last minute every single week to do my print. <laughs> and I would share a new print every Monday. So Saturday and Sunday, I would be in my studio printing. Uh -oh, right. <laughs> and what that meant was that I did the fastest, easiest thing for me, which was block printing. Um, and so I got, I don't want to say I got good at it, but I got fast at it. And I figured out that there was a specific kind of block medium that worked for me that was soft, so I wasn't carving linoleum. Um, I experimented with ink and asked people what inks they were using, and they I had all these responses, and I experimented with them all, and I figured out what ink worked best for me. And also didn't do anything too complex, so I would do simple shapes if I had nothing else to do, and just print them on a piece of fabric or a piece of paper and call it a day. Those ended up being the ones that people liked the most, which I thought was really funny. So of the 52 weeks, I think I spent 46 of them block printing um, and, and the other six <laughs> were screen printed. So I ended up not doing anything too new for me. Um, but in the course of that, because I was sharing a lot of things on my blog and on Instagram, and this was in the early days of Instagram, so people still read blogs. Right. Um, so this I, was 2014. So yeah, yeah, pretty early on of Instagram. Yeah. Yep. And I think hashtags had just become a thing. Sure. Yeah. And people started following that project and they started asking me to teach the class. And I'd always wanted to teach, but I actually tell Allie at the makery this story where she had contacted me years ago and asked me if I would be interested in teaching at one of the makeries. And I said, yes, I have all these ideas. Um, but just so you know, I haven't taught an art class ever. And she said, oh, you know what? We need experienced teachers, so I'll follow up with you again in a couple of years. And she did. And I had a lot of teaching experience, but that was one of the things that had motivated me because I saw people going all these really cool art camps or learning weekends or retreats, and I wanted to be a part of that. 
Um, and so this was the perfect way for me to get into it. So I taught that first class at the now defunct Makeshift Society. And I think I taught, now I teach this class, it takes me five hours to teach it. I think I taught it in two and a half hours there. I was drenched in sweat by the end of that class. Um, but some learning spaces had started to open up. And so I went and asked them, would you be interested in me hosting a class? And yeah, it just took off from there. So my first few classes didn't fill up, but at a certain point they would start filling up two months ahead of time. And I knew I had something there. Okay. So this project was essentially a way for you to get some focused practice. Mm -hmm. Um, So you, you know, because you had this deadline self-imposed, but it was a deadline nonetheless, Mm -hmm. you experimented with a lot of different materials, figured out what you liked best, Mm -hmm. figured out all these different shapes, all of that, developed a style, et cetera, preferences of what you liked. And then, um, because Allie, and Allie's been on the Washington Apps podcast, so people can go back and listen to the Makery episode and hear more about what the Makery is all about. But because she had approached you, yet you needed more experience, you had that in the back of your mind. Like, if Mm -hmm. I go out and teach, then I can go and do the Makery at some point. Maybe she'll hire me. So (laughs) I'll, you know, yeah, be able to teach this. This could become something. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, yeah, that that was additional motivation. So that's really interesting. And it all kind of came about just through this project, right. through this self-imposed, I'm just going to come up with simple rules. And the rules really were what? What would you say the rules of the project were? If you had to say like, you know, what, what, were the, what was the definition of this project? I think that there were no rules for that project. My second project that I did the following year had tons of rules. But that first project, I think it, it had was to just be once a week, once on, a week Monday. on Monday. It had to be a print. That was it on fabric or anything on fabric anything. Or paper. Just the print of any kind on mm-hmm. fabric or paper once a week. That was that it. was it. Okay, so very very simple, very open ended. Yep. And that was it. And I had there was not a single week where I didn't share. I didn't put. And it had to be shared it publicly had to be shared. Yep. online, regardless of whether or not I liked it. Whether it was super terrible. Yep. It just had, I just had to put it out. Okay. Yeah. And again, early days of Instagram, also early days of my art career. So if I put something crappy out there, I put something crappy out there, you know? Yeah. And learning to be comfortable sometimes Mm -hmm. with the fact that this week's didn't really fit with your aesthetic. Or just post another picture really soon (laughs) after that. (laughs) Bye-bye. And here's another picture really fast. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh We'll just bury that one. Okay. All right. So, um, so that was cool and led to some interesting, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, professional and personal growth. Um, And then there was the next project and that one came the next year. Yes. Um, Okay. And that was called Print Pattern Sew. Is that right? All right. So, um, so explain what that project was and what it led to. Yes. So Print Pattern Sew, I decided I wanted to do another year long project. um, And I figured it out probably in June or July of the previous year, but didn't say anything. And what Print Pattern Sew was, was Um, I would print yardage every single month. So printing yardage means when you buy your fabric at a fabric store, it comes on a bolt and you buy yards instead of just buying a little piece or printing on a little piece. I was going to print on two or three yards of fabric. And that meant I had to learn how to do repeat patterns by hand. Um, But I would sew the fabric into a garment that I would actually want to wear. And I would only use indie sewing patterns. Um, 
I don't know why I didn't want to do the big four or big five. I think, well, also it's just a lot easier to work with independent sewing patterns. And that had been all I'd worked with up to that point. So at the end of the year, I had 12 different garments that I had hand printed the fabric. I'd sewn the garments myself. um, And I would post something, I think the last Monday was supposed to be the last Monday of every month. And sometimes it turned into the last day of every month. Okay. Through it. All right. So this was a little bit, uh, I mean, it was a little bit more involved because first of all, you had to print several yards of fabric and also then you had to sew that Mm -hmm. fabric into a garment. So this is a lot more work. So once a month versus every week is a lot more reasonable for something like a project of that scope. Um, Also, who needs really 52? Yeah, that's a lot of garments. Yeah, (laughs) that's a lot. Right. Okay. Um, And so some of the things you made were like maybe a dress and a shirt, um, a scarf. Did you make other, uh, what did you make other things like that? I didn't make any scarves. No scarves. It all had to be um, an actual piece of clothing rather than an An accessory. accessory. Okay. Otherwise, I would have done 12 months of scarves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Me too. (laughs) That's just how I roll. Okay. And the funny thing is it wasn't until the very last month that I learned how to put in an invisible zipper. So every single garment, except for that last one, just kind of slid over my head. Right. So sort of like the Sonia Phillips dress, number Mm -hmm. one, very simple kind of shift dress. Exactly. Okay. Right. Yep. Um, All right. So so were there some big lessons from that that you can identify or take away from that, that year? I think the biggest lesson, um, and that I knew this would be a challenge going into it, a lot of what everything I'd done up to that point was work that would lie flat. So it didn't really matter. You wouldn't lose details in a fold. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you are wearing your garment, once you're wearing fabric, you actually have to think about how it will lie on the body and how it will look, which meant that my prints got a lot larger. Also, when you're printing yardage, the smaller your block, the more you have to print. So if you have a really large block, it goes way more quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, and I've always loved loud prints, but this was a great excuse to carve loud and carve big and just have really very bold prints. Okay. And I think all of them were fairly out there. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Got it. All right. And then at some point during that year, you realized that this could be a book. Mm Mm-hmm. And the turning point for me, and I've told Christine this, Christine from A Verb for Keeping Warm, she has a book called The Modern Natural Dyer. Her book must have come out in August of that year, August or September. And it was a really complex book. And craft books up to that point, at least the ones I had seen, had been very simple, straightforward. Um, But a lot of times there wasn't anything in a craft book that I couldn't find on a blog. But what Christine's book did was it taught you how to make natural dyes, which is a really complex process, then how to prepare your yarn or your fabric for dyeing, then how to dye it, and from there, projects that you could, could actually 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 make using your dyed fabric yarn. Um, so it wasn't just a one or two step process. It was often a four, five, six step process. And... I realized, and also I'd been teaching the class now for a year and a half, I realized that there were people out there who craved much more complex um, craft books, and I was one of them. And I didn't know there was a market for it until Christine's book came out. And people were asking me a lot of questions about how to print yardage, or would tell me, I really like your style, and I'd love to learn how to make that. 
Um, and so I decided probably in the fall of that year to put together a book proposal, but I was so busy that year that I couldn't get to it until January. And because I am a planner, I booked a couple of weeks in January just to work on this. I rented space to do the photo shoot. My, my photos were horrible, um, but whatever, they got the work done. And I sat down and I wrote out a few chapters and did some project comps and um, packaged them up and sent them to a few editors that I'd either known or who were friends of friends or someone else's editor. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, And then a couple of months went by. And then from what I've gathered, um, Roos, which is the publisher that you ended up going with, reached out to you. Um, So I'm interested to uh, hear how you ended up selecting Roos Mm -hmm. in the end, Um, because it's always interesting to me to think through sort of that match, how the match gets made. So why you chose Roos. And and by the way, Roos has also been on the podcast so you can hear them as has Christine from a verb from keeping warm so you can hear her story too but anyway go ahead I know we're all interconnected but um so I had sent off the the proposal to a number of um editors and started getting inquiries and wanted they wanted more information and right when I had I think two publishers were interested at that point right when they were working on getting me an offer Jen who from Roost emailed me and said, hey, I love your project, Print Pattern So, would you ever be interested in writing a book? And I said, actually, I have a proposal out and I think I'm going to get offers in the next week. So let me send it to you and you'll just need to make a decision really quickly. And of the three, I think there were three final offers that I got, only Jen and Roost really wanted the project that you had that proposed, said. right? They, so the others sort of came back and said, "Simplify it, uh huh, change it for us, right?" And I and what did they want simplified in particular? They wanted it to not be that you would print, like you that you would show people how to actually print the yardage and then sew the clothes, or I think they wanted the clothes to take a back seat. Okay, and what they were concerned about was um, it was just too complex, mm-hmm. like it would people is it a sewing book is it a printmaking book? right it's really hard to cross streams like that mm-hmm. um you know it's the same with christine's yes. book. is it a knitting book is it a sewing book right. is it about natural dye like yes. it's all of it those is things. all of those things and christine's book really is both a knitting and a sewing book and mm-hmm. a dyeing book yep. which is even more complex than yours because right. your book is not a knitting book no so that takes that no. it takes one layer of complexity away <laughs> well and also dying i when she when she published the book um i got a promo copy an advanced copy and worked on one of the projects and i thought this is really fun but oh my god as a person who loves really complex drawn out processes this is even a lot for it's me. a lot yeah it is yeah. a lot yeah Mm-hmm. But my friends who, especially the sciencey friends, mm-hmm. love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And yeah. Roos was like, it's cool. Yeah. It's cool the way it is. It's, it's cool. Your idea, we accept your idea the way you right. envision your idea. And I figured if I'm going to spend a year and a few months of my life mm-hmm. working on a book, I want to work on the book I want to work right. on. Right. Also, Jen and I just clicked. Mm-hmm. There was something, I think it's because she's in um, Boulder, Jen, you're probably going to listen to this, but she's in, she's in Boulder <laughs> yeah. and Roos is part of Shambhala, yes. which is publishes mainly uh, Buddhist books. Yes. There's something very calm and easy about working with Jen and with working in Roos, with Roost in general. Um, whereas the other publishers were 
think both in New York. Mm -hmm. And it was just, and part of much larger corporate publishing houses. It's a different vibe. Yeah, it was intense. Yeah, it was a different vibe. And Shambhala is a family-owned business. Mm -hmm. Um, Though it's a second-generation family-owned business, and it's a different vibe. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, So a couple random questions um, that are sort of smaller, but, you know, interesting business questions. So one of them is Etsy. Etsy's, you use Etsy for e-commerce. I'm wondering why Etsy and not, um, you know, Shopify, et cetera, and so forth. Right now, Etsy is the path of least resistance. Got it. Um, I started with Etsy. And back when I had my stationary business to build a website, I didn't even have e-commerce on my website my old business. And I think that website cost me like $7,000, to be honest, and I couldn't fix it myself. Um, And Etsy came along and suddenly I could sell directly to people. So I started that in 2008 and just haven't quit. Um, But Etsy has gotten to be really expensive given my volume of sales. And when I look at where my traffic is coming from, it's coming from my Instagram, it's coming from my newsletter. Um, Sometimes it comes from my blog and sometimes it comes from Pinterest. But by far, Instagram and my newsletter are the biggest drivers. I get very little organic traffic directly from Etsy. Um, and I'm thinking about ship switching to Shopify, but that's part of a bigger website overhaul. And I just haven't had have time. Have it there yet. Got it. Okay. So, yep. Next year. All right. Now, next year. <coughs> okay. Um, newsletter. Uh, how important is the newsletter? What's your newsletter strategy? Talk a little bit about newsletters. Newsletter is huge. Um, so it's... That and Instagram are the biggest drivers, again, of traffic to my to my website and my shop. Um, my newsletter is not, a, I don't have a ton of people, maybe 3,000. And I do, I actually do your purge every few months because it does get expensive to hold on to it. But my open rates and my click rates are really high on that. And I can actually track the sale pretty easily through that. Um, a lot of times I sell, I announce new products on my newsletter. I'm almost always, I announce them first on my newsletter before I announce them on Instagram. And I will often have items sell out just because of that newsletter. Um, so I send it out on the first and the 16th of every single month. Um, I try to write something a little bit thoughtful in the intro. And then, so I'm not just strictly selling things. So it's something thoughtful in the intro and then classes, new products, book launch, and then links at the end. So if you only want the links, you can skip to the links. If you only want to read the intro, you can do that. But if you want to buy something from me, Mm -hmm. go for it. And what are the links to? Articles that I find interesting. Same Mm -hmm. as what you do in your newsletter. Okay. Um, I actually try to make, because I'm not overtly political, but I do have fairly strong political beliefs. A lot of times the links will be to... Uh, specifically experiences of people of color in the United States. Okay. Um, or, you know, information about Hurricane Maria recovery up, up efforts. So I'll have one or two of those in there. Mm-hmm. And then I'll also talk about, like, here's some creative news or, you know, here's an African-American quilter you need to know. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, and I try, right now I'm kind of obsessed with Native American art, mm-hmm. um, specifically their textile work. So just the intricate beading, um, and the weaving and those traditions still exist really strongly mm-hmm. in those communities. So every time I come across something along those lines, I'll include this, like, here are some people you need to follow on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, just those things that generally I'm interested in and think that people who follow me would be interested in. Got too. it. Okay, great. So that's good to know. Um, and then let's talk about Instagram. 
as well. Mm-hmm. So you're you're really good at Instagram. Oh, um, uh, yeah, no, for sure. And uh, I was on your account the other day. You had forty three. Point two thousand followers, my <laughs> friend, on Instagram. <laughs> so, uh, talk a little bit about how you think about Instagram, what you do on Instagram day to day, and sort of how you approach it. I think Instagram is really good for sharing some information about process and also talking about product um, and announcing that. But I also want to share the things that I've made with the things that I've made, if that makes sense. So so my fabric line, for example, I have been sharing clothes that I've made from it because I love to sew and I love clothes and I also love the fabric line. Um, I try not to get super personal on there. I'm a fairly private person, so there are just certain lines I don't cross. And if people ask me questions about that, those things, I either won't answer or I'll just say it's not something I talk about. Um, and I think that's comforting to hear because I think some people say, well, I can't do Instagram because, or I can't share on social media because I don't want to share what I had for breakfast or I don't want to, you know, talk about every personal thing about my life and therefore this isn't for me. And what you're saying is that you don't have to do that and you can still do this very well. Well, and I think that's also, I think that's an excuse, right? I think a lot of times people will tell me, oh, I want to share on Instagram, but my work isn't very good and I don't want to put out bad work. And I'm like, you have 200 followers, put out the bad work. Just put it out consistently and it will get better and you're, you'll get a much more engaged following. If you think it's important to you to have a big Instagram following, then you have to start somewhere. And I also spoke with somebody recently who said, well, I don't have something to share every day. Then don't share something every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm at the point now where I have to share something almost every day just to keep engagement going. And sometimes it can be a, a slog to do that. Um, I will walk around my house with my phone and be like, <laughs> I'm going to take a picture right. of something now. <laughs> I don't know what, but something. Every once in a while, like, oh, I've got something in the archives that I haven't photographed yes. for a year. So right. I'll put it back out there. Um, but I do put things out there to keep people engaged. Um, I do share my student work. I think that's really important. In fact, I have photos from Squam that I need to post. And whenever possible, I try to tag them in it so that they get more eyeballs to their accounts. Um, I mean, yes, it sells my class, definitely. But I think it also is encouraging for people to see that someone can come and take a five-hour class or read a book or you know, practice on their own and actually create something that's interesting and compelling, that it's not all or nothing. Um, yeah. And sometimes I'll share work by friends, things that I like. Um, you know, if I have a friend who's just published a book, I will share that too. So I try not to do too many selfies just because I start to feel overexposed. Um, but I also feel that, um, representation is important. And so there are people who follow me because I look like them and I'm doing the things they like to do. Mm -hmm. And I hear that a lot. So I'll pop in every five or six photos or so and I'll be in there and then I can not share a photo of myself for a while. And I like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And talk a little bit about your online class. So you've you've run an online class for a little while um, and it's quite popular. And I wondered if you just have some tips to share about how to structure an online Mm -hmm. class, just more like nuts and bolts. Yeah. Some things that you've learned 
that over the course of doing it for a while Mm -hmm. that have made it successful, whether it's around sort of pricing it well, um, sort of opening and closing it. I don't know, just things like that um, for people who are interested in hosting their own online classes, um, but maybe aren't 100 percent sure about, you know, how to do it well. Right. Um, So the online class was based on my in-person teaching experience. So I had a really good idea of how to chunk out lessons. Also, when I was working for the e-learning company, I was working with a lot of instructional designers. And so I was just exposed to a lot of that. Um, So that's, I think that's the first thing is to have taught it in person a few times and done some dry run-throughs with folks so that you know how to break up lessons. That's really important. Um, I also set my class, unlike Craftsy or Creative Bug, where you can watch it as many times as you want. Well, actually, you can watch mine as many times as you want, but indefinitely. Um, My class, you can only watch it for a set period, which is usually a month to six weeks. And that's because I actually want people, if they pay for the class, because it's not cheap, to prioritize it and schedule it and get it in. Because I have bought many an online class that I've never finished. Um, And I want people to finish it because I want, you know, I want them to be happy with what they've done. Um, I also have been running a Facebook group as kind of the classroom for the class. So it's the forum where people can ask me questions and share their work. Um, I don't, I can't handle people sending me, sometimes some classes have had 100 people. Usually my average is around 65 to 70, which is a nice manageable size. But even at that size, I can't deal with all of the email that's coming in with questions and here's my work and do you have feedback? I'd much rather it be in a central location. And I think that that Facebook group is what one of the reasons people really enjoy the class is because they feel like they're learning with other people and they're not in some silo off by themselves in South Africa or New Zealand, because I have a lot of students from both of those places, um, just working away, you know, in their living room. And do you host it on your blog mm-hmm. or it's just so it's just hosted on your blog? It's not on a separate no, platform or anything? No, it's on my website. It's in a hidden part of my website that you need to have a password and a direct link to access. Got it. Okay. All right. Great. And um, you've priced it well enough that you feel fairly compensated when somebody mm-hmm. comes in because some students are very low maintenance, but mm-hmm. there's always some students who are quite high maintenance mm-hmm. and ask lots of questions yeah. and are, you know, asking for a lot of your time. And so you have to make sure that you price it in a way that you still feel like it was a, a good yeah. uh, relationship financially for you. Well, yes. and also I price it so that if you if you sign up early, you get a pretty hefty discount. And if you subscribe to my newsletter, you get a discount. So those are people who I know are going to be possibly the most engaged and are most exposed to my work because they're not coming into it at the very last minute, having just found me somewhere and don't really know what to expect. So the earlier you sign up, the better. Um, and then I also have a really hard and fast rule about deadlines. So I say the class registration ends on this date. I don't make any exceptions because just from teaching in general, um, and also having taught online, I know that the people who wait until the last minute to sign up are going to be very difficult, or wait until after the deadline to sign up and are asking me to make an exception, are going to be difficult throughout the rest of the course. Um, And I hold hard and fast to that. And that may seem really, really strict, but it's what works for me. Okay, that's another really good tip. 
I'm um, the queen of boundaries, by the way. Yeah, I can tell. Well, and you know, that's really great. Um, and I want to, um, we have lots of other things that we could talk about. You've done some cool collaborations with Fringe Supply Company, which people should go and check out. We're not going to talk about that right now. And you um, are also going to be teaching at ACE Camps in India, yes. which is amazing. And people should go check that out. Um, but I did want to just touch on before we get to your recommendations that um, you have this fabric line with fab- with um, cotton and steel, which is coming out in August and is really exciting. And I know you had um, mentioned previously um, in other interviews that you had wanted to do some more licensing. And this is a really cool opportunity to do that. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about kind of how it came about and what your goal was in having a commercial line versus what you've been doing up until mm-hmm. now, which is hand printing textiles. And now you've got this commercially printed textile line, what the difference is for you and um, and sort of what you see as, as um, the opportunity there. Yeah, I got a random email from Melody through my website, not even directly through my regular email. Um, Melody Miller, who was the founder, one of the founders of Cotton and Seal, she emailed me, I think it was June 1st of 2017, and I was in the depths of my um, final manuscript editing. So it was a little bit nutty, and I said, I would love to talk with you would be totally happy to do this next week. Let's talk. And I think the process was super fast with her. Um, I sent some files, said, what do you think? She tweaked them a little bit, sent them back to me. We worked on them. And by the end of maybe even mid-July, we had a fairly cohesive collection done. Really, it was one of the fastest projects I've ever had. Um, So I don't sell my printed fabric. I will sell my printed fabric, hand-printed fabric, as a part of an item. So you can buy a bag for me that I've printed, but I won't sell you the yardage for the most part. Um, It's just that it's so labor-intensive that it doesn't make any financial sense for me to do it, which is why I teach people how to do it themselves. But every once in a while, I'll do a craft fair. There is one craft fair that I do through Handcraft Studio School, their holiday fair, and that's where I bring all my misprints and all my scrap pieces of fabric or my little fat quarters. And this past year I brought it in and I sold uh, everything in 30 minutes. Wow. There was a line at the door. One woman bought $400 worth of misprints and fabric scraps. And I thought, right, there really is a market wow. for people who want my fabric. And I've told, when people ask me, I tell them, well, it starts at $200 a yard just because I know no one will take me up on it, except for interior designers, and then I up the price. (laughs) Um, And so I knew that if I had a fabric line, that people would buy it if it was fairly close to the work that I regularly do, because there was, I knew there was enough of a demand for it. Um, And I knew it was kind of special because they just couldn't get their hands on my fabric. So that's, yeah, that's why I wanted to do licensing. Mm -hmm. And other companies had contacted me, but always at the wrong time. So they would contact me when like I was in the middle of proposals or something and I just wouldn't follow up. And I think that said something too, right? Either wasn't the right time for me or it wasn't the right fit in terms of company. Mm -hmm. But because of the work that Cotton and Steel was doing, is doing with a lot of their unbleached fabric and Melody also had a background working for Coca fabric, Mm -hmm. which is kind of different in that it's very textural. Yeah. It's not flat like a lot of quilting cotton is right. in terms of graphics. Yes. It felt like absolutely the right fit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's exciting. 
So, and you were at Quilt Market with it. I was at Quilt Market with them, and yeah, yeah it was great. It was a beautiful booth. Store, stores are ordering the whole collection, which is nice. exciting. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm actually going to put a call out on Instagram to stores that are ordering to tag themselves so that I can know, like, are you ordering the collection where you located so that followers can follow up with them mm-hmm. instead of constantly emailing me, who's going to carry it in South Carolina? Like, Right, right. And now knowing that this is sort of the end of that era, Mm -hmm. I feel like it actually ends up being perhaps more valuable in a certain way. Yeah. Yeah, which is interesting. So, all right, I want to get to your recommendations. So um, you've got some some good ones here. And the first one is bags in bags. (laughs) Um, So you said you've been traveling a lot for work and... So tell me a little bit about bags and bags. Bags and bags. I thought this was a completely novel idea. Apparently everybody else does it too. But okay. I have a bunch of, because of the work I do, I have a bunch of fabric zippered bags and drawstring bags just lying around. And so when I travel, I find it easiest to just put like things in one bag so that I can always find everything. Um, and that way, especially right now, I'm picking up and I'm in a different place every other night. I can just throw things back into one bag and then I'll know like visually, oh, it's on the flower bag. I can pull that open and that's where all my clean underwear is or my makeup is always going to be in this bag. And then I just put everything into one bigger bag and I can pull out what I need when I need to. It's very neat and tidy. Yes. I'm good. not neat and tidy. So this keeps me under control very when I'm traveling. Organized. Yes, yeah. that's good. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I need to talk to my 14-year-old who, um, <laughs> yes, has many bags, but none of them have like things in them. That's the problem. I need to talk to my 14-year-old self because I was a <laughs> mess at that age, too. <laughs> so there is hope for her. Okay, good. This is good. Um, all right, keeping a notebook. So um, I have lots of notebooks. In fact, I have one right here next to me. I live with this um, yellow uh, um, notebook that I keep next to me. You can see I have an inbox over here and it, you'll see underneath here. Yes. I have so many yellow notebooks and those are all the used ones and I keep them all. They're like my mm-hmm. archives of yellow notebooks. So tell me about your notebook. It's kind of the same idea. I write all my notes in just one place. I used to have a zillion different notebooks and then I could never remember where I'd written that important thing. Um, so now I just get, right now I like Moleskine notebooks um, and I found them on sale at Blick if you get them in colors and they were like $8 a piece. So I bought 10 of them, um, pink and green and purple. And so I will carry one around, write everything, including my to-do list. If I, someone recommends a book, if I hear a song I like, if I go to a museum and see work that I like, I'll just write it all in there. And then I'll label on the side the date range once I finish the notebook and put it on my wall. And so I'm usually pretty good at remembering, oh, I heard such and such a song when I was in this place on this date, and then I can go to the right notebook and mm-hmm. remember what the song is. Yeah, I love it because I will go back through mm-hmm. and re- like, these are all my interview notes from everyone that I've talked to for years and years. So I can go back and Amazing. be like, here's the exact thing that that person said when I spoke to them. Um, it's really useful. So I just yeah. keep everything. Yeah. Well, and as an anxious child, I kept everything in my head. I had a really good memory. Um, And so people would ask questions and I would be able, made made me a good student, but it also made me even more anxious because I was carrying all this information in my head. And now that I'm older and my memory's not as good and I'm not as anxious, it's just helpful to have things in notebooks. Yeah. And all out of my head. Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely. All right. And this one I totally agree with as well. Getting outside every day. 
Oh my gosh. Well, I'm lucky that I live in a place that's fairly moderate all year and nice and mild. Um, but I have to walk my dog and I don't know what I would do if I didn't get outside and exercise a little bit and just get out of my head. Um, also, I, I work at home. So if I didn't go outside at least twice a day, I could to walk the dog. I would never leave the house. So it's it's important for me when I'm stuck to get up and go for a walk when I can't figure out what to do next. Sometimes I just need to work off a little bit of anxiety by going for a walk. Um, if I finish early and I need to work on, I can want to move on to the next thing, I'll get up and I'll go for a walk. <laughs> it's just like, it's the best bit of advice I can give anyone. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I go for a run, uh, in the mornings and I go out my, I have a, a, fr- a neighbor and I live in Boston where it gets really cold yeah. and I have a neighbor and she'll see me outside when it's literally like negative four here. And I'm like, so bundled. And she's like, I have a treadmill. You can come no. to my house. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. <laughs> I don't go on a treadmill. Like I'm outside for a reason, even though it is really cold out here. You need to breathe that outside. Yeah, exactly. Too. It's mm-hmm. really important. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Well, Jen, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walsh Naps podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you and thanks for coming to visit me. Thanks so much, Abby. Yeah, it was, was really, it was really great. fun. Yeah. And you've been listening to the Walsh Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was sponsored by Indigo Junction. Inspire your creative spirit with Indigo Junction books and patterns. Visit the IJ blog to learn more about fabrics and techniques, as well as giveaways and events. Join the Indigo Junction Facebook sewing pattern group, and receive the everyday dress pattern. Use the coupon code WSN25 for 25% off your entire order. Thank you so much, Indigo Junction. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.